Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, we're hearing more and more about the Green New Deal, especially as we get into the 2020 presidential elections. Now, the Green New Deal is basically a set of proposed economic stimulus programs in the United States, and the goal is to address climate change and economic inequality. And the green part refers to proposals to reduce impacts of climate change. It's mostly with things like renewable energy, energy efficiency, agriculture, and just general things that are going to help the climate. Now, the New Deal part refers to social and economic reforms and public works projects, very similar to what was undertaken by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in response to the Great Depression. What he did is basically things like the Civilian Conservation Corp, Civil Works Administration, and you know, Social Security Administration. Now, the Green New Deal is a term that was coined by journalist and author Thomas Friedman back in 2007. The concept bounced around and evolved. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey released a 14-page resolution for their Green New Deal on February 7, 2019. And it appeals strongly to some people, but then there's opposition from others. The differences aren't only between Republicans and Democrats, but pretty generally, Republicans are against both the Green and the New Deal part, and Democrats are generally for it, but there's, there's lots of things in between. And I also have been seeing that there's a big generational difference. I'm strongly in favor of almost all the green parts of the Green New Deal. And just through my experience, I'm somewhat skeptical about some of the New Deal parts, but I'm an old fart. Millennials, adults born generally between 1980 and 2000, have a very different perspective. They and their children are going to bear the burdens of climate change much more than older farts like me. And they're not as jaded about the prospects of major economic and societal changes. So I recently ran into one of my daughter's high school and college friends, and she's here on the show. Kylie Singh's very active on behalf of the Green New Deal. She's a graduate of NYU, and she's an activist and community organizer for the Bay Area Sunrise Movement. So welcome to the show, Kylie. Hi, Barry. It's good to be here. All right, cool. I give you my kind of perspective on the Green New Deal, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your perspective on it and what it is? Yeah, I mean, in that intro there, I think you pointed out a few really integral parts, which is that energy is pretty much the roots of our society. We pretty much run on energy and everything is connected to it. And so when we're talking about the Green New Deal, we're talking about a complete energy shift. So we're talking about lowering emissions to net zero, and we're looking to transition from fossil fuels into renewable energies. And when we're doing that, everything is going to change because everything is affected by energy. And so when I look at the Green New Deal and I see the social aspects that may seem irrelevant, they're actually interconnected because energy touches upon everything. And so we have to go at this energy crisis with a holistic approach. And so my perspective on the Green New Deal is that in order for it to be successful, it needs to have this holistic way of approaching the problem at hand. Now, what about the New Deal part? That is at least somewhat more controversial among people just in terms of just the general societal benefits. Why is it so integral to have the social justice part tied into the green part? Absolutely. And that's a great question that we hear a lot. And I want to first um, talk about a few of those social justice portions. One of them is health care for everybody. It's making sure that we are taking care and talking to our vulnerable communities and making sure that they have input. We're making sure there's a jobs guarantee 
And those are some of the main social justice parts, the New Deal parts, per se, you can call them. So, you know, one of the things that we in the solar and the energy, the renewable energy industry have been talking about is when you look at parts of the society that are most affected by pollution, mm-hmm. it, it, really, it generally happens to lower-income people. I mean, they may be the ones that are you know, digging coal or they're living near a power plant. They have more health issues. Absolutely. And that is why it's so integral for us to make sure that we are thinking about them when we're creating legislation under the Green New Deal. And the thing with the Green New Deal is that it's a framework. It's not a set of legislation or policy yet. What it is is It's an overarching vision of what we'd like the policy to fall under. So when we have parts in the Green New Deal that are saying that we need to consult our vulnerable communities and we also need to make sure that we're not dumping all of the waste right by them, it's looking at it in a way where we are not making the same mistakes that we have in the past. And if we're looking at the New Deal, for example, the one that was pushed out by FDR, there were a lot of portions of it that created a lot of the problems that we see today. For example, well, for one, the New Deal wasn't very inclusive. It only was specifically aimed for white males. And it also had certain aspects of it that created more harm than it did good. And we don't really have too much time left. So it's really important for us to make sure that we're going forth with a way that includes most people and people who, like you said, are going to be most affected by this crisis. Yeah. When I was just kind of prepping for the show a little bit, I was looking at some of the latest research about the impact of global warming. And there was a report that was put out this week, new research, shows many coastal cities are going to be basically erased by rising sea levels by 2050. The water's coming up faster than we think. I mean, I was just thinking about examples, mostly in Asia, but, you know, Shanghai, most of Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh City is going to be underwater. The sea level, the tides are going to come Mm -hmm. up to where people are living. So it's going to be really, really high. And the, the costs are going to be almost incalculable to move people or put in barriers and dikes and pumps to prevent that. How can we mobilize to fix this problem? Because the problem seems to be getting worse faster than we thought. Mm -hmm. And at least here in the U.S., we're moving more slowly than we should. And on that issue, too, the planet is on track to warm up to three degrees Celsius by the end of the century, which will end up being $551 trillion worth of damage. And so talking about mobilization The mobilization part, if we mobilize now, that will actually be the most cost-effective solution because the alternative to do nothing is going to be exponentially worse. And uh, many scientists are saying that once we reach a level of warming, there's going to be a feedback loop that makes it impossible for us to actually make changes. So we're in a really opportune moment right now, which is why the Green New Deal is so incredible because it does fit within the timeline of the IPCC report. Yeah, you get to this tipping point where, you know, all the glaciers collapse into the water, the water goes up, the sea level goes up, and then it's a feedback loop. It gets worse and worse. Now, the the IPCC had estimated that we need about a trillion dollars a year in clean energy. And this is basically just, you know, basically getting rid of the fossil fuel emissions to keep us under two degrees. How can we afford that investment just for energy environmental issues alone? Where's the money going to come from? Absolutely. And so something that happens right now is that there's this corporate socialism that happens. Fossil fuel industries, they get about $20 billion in subsidies annually. So right now we're seeing about 137 oil spills a year. 
So that's about 11 oil spills per month, and that costs us incredibly financially. We're also subsidizing our fossil fuel industry, about $20 billion annually. And right now, when we look at clean energy systems, we're seeing some of the cheapest options around. Wind and solar have already been proven to be cheaper than new fossil fuel investments. And so the path economically is very simple and it's very obvious. We also spend, so military spending is the second federal spending budget after Social Security. And a lot of that goes into protecting our oil reserves around the world. President Trump just last week said, we're sending our people into Syria. We're going to keep them there. So we got the oil. So instead of kind of moving Mm -hmm. out of the Middle East, those troops are going to be guarding basically Syrian oil fields. Exactly. So we're, we're spending, expending a lot of money right now to protect an industry that's already on the downfall, that's already ruining our planet. And we're verging on even more and more risky oil investments like deep water drilling, fracking, going into just parts of the Canadian tar sands. And those are really scary options that we're pursuing, even though we had this clean, cheap and renewable resource at our, at our hands. And right now we've already seen the price drop for solar and wind. For solar, it's been 90 percent. And for wind, it's been 70 percent. And I could only and that was only in a decade. So I could only see the progress going further yeah. and further. No, it's, it's going to get cheaper and cheaper. I've been riding that cost curve down and, and fighting that fight. Besides fighting the utilities, the biggest battle, at, at least for our industry, has been fighting the incumbent fossil fuel industry. And the problem is they're enormously profitable. I mean, they're making billions of dollars of profit every single quarter, and they dump a lot of money into lobbying. So when we're lobbying, mostly these lobbying things go on in Washington in D.C., which I've participated in, but it's really hard to fight against that huge amount of money from a relatively small industry like wind and solar, although what's happened is the costs of wind and solar have come down so much it's clearly cheaper, and as the wind and solar industry have grown, we've got more money to kind of fight these battles. You know, we're making progress, but it's, it's slow. Making progress, and also I think that the general public is calling and looking for an alternative, And also, as we're looking in California with all the wildfires, I think that, and not just in California, all around the world, fires in Siberia right now, Greenland melting, people are starting to get worried and looking for solutions. And that kind of brings us to mass mobilization and kind of like my role as an activist and kind of how we've been pushing forth forms of protest in order to quicken the action in politics. Yeah, we've got to do that. So, Kylie, we're, we're kind of, you know, during the break, we were talking a little bit about the intergenerational aspects of climate change. And I remember when I was in, in high school and college, the mantra was, don't trust anybody over 30. Is that kind of still the issue with climate change, or are there other nuances to that? I don't think that that's the case with the climate momentum right now. And when I mean climate momentum, I mean the coalition of all of these different different climate organizations that are coming together and fighting for this cause. So there's people who are the Thousand Grandmothers is a really great climate organization. We also have um, all the way down to Earth Guardians and Youth versus Apocalypse, where they're all under 18 years old. So it's truly intergenerational. But I think that one thing that I think is different about this part of this transformation of the climate movement is that there's a lot of youth leaders. And the reason for that is because kind of as you mentioned before, like young people aren't quite as jaded and so 
have these visions that are going to really push us over the edge because they are able to see not only a world that can transition to net zero, but also one that is better in many senses to the ways that we see the world right now. So also kind of relating that social justice within the Green New Deal. Yes. And a lot of times that younger people are just like, uh, we're going to try this. We have to try this. And they haven't been beaten down by sometimes reality. So they're really going to strive to do things that haven't been done before in spite of all the opposition. Yes and no, because I think that a lot of young people are kind of realizing the reality right now. And the reality is that a lot of us don't have a future. A lot of us don't know if we can have kids. A lot of us are really scared that we're going to see a lot of our friends around the world be affected by climate catastrophe and they're going to see their homes being burned. I mean, I really have friends who are starting to see their entire neighborhoods being burned in Sonoma. And so I think that a lot of young people are really tuned into the reality and are really, really frightened. And so that's why it's important for them to be leaders because they have that urge to really fight. Yeah. A lot of old people are very concerned and frightened also. But then there's a lot of people that are, let's just call them conservatives, that really are either in denial or want to continue to support these existing fossil fuel industries. And we were just talking about, you know, conservatives. Conservatives, the root word is conservation. And so you kind of look at where the conservative party originated from. It was people who were really trying to be more conservation oriented. Yeah, that is a good point. I also want to speak on, I do actually think conservatives are really frightened too, which is kind of the reason why for their impulse to deny Okay. It's interesting. It's just that the reaction is denial. All right. So let's talk about some of these New Deal measures. Energy jobs require training. From our standpoint of doing battery storage and solar, we can't hire qualified installers fast enough. How can we train people right here in Silicon Valley? Is that one of the most expensive labor markets in the the country? Yeah. Have you heard of grid alternatives? Yes. I know them really well since their beginning. So grid alternatives is just a really amazing model. And it's also a lot of what we're moving towards in terms of of renewables and kind of community infrastructure. And what I mean by community infrastructure is a more decentralized way of hiring people, of training people, of expanding markets. So what Grid Alternatives essentially does is that they will allow for people to come and volunteer on actual work sites and allow for a really speedy training process. And so when we're talking about like a good jobs guarantee, there's going to be a lot more resources put into things like grid alternatives of making sure that the focus is not necessarily going into school and doing four years and coming out and having a job, but really instilling people with the right resources and the skills to get a job right away. So it's going to take a lot. But I think when the policy is aligned with what people need and want, it can happen in a really speedy way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that the model we have in the U.S. and we've been pushing everybody to go to college and things like that, but the model they have in other countries, for example, like Germany, is they have a really good vocational training network. I remember when I was <laughs> during college or after college looking around for a job, I'm like, gee, maybe I should be an electrician or a plumber. And I was like, no, 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 I want to do this energy thing and, you know, be an executive and things like that. And so I didn't do that. But lo and behold, like 15 years later, basically I'm an electrician fiddling around on the roof. But there's a huge demand for that. That. The challenge is just to find people. And what we've found are the people that do the best work in the solar and the battery storage industry are really the people who are committed to it, have that, that environmental interest and, and really want to change the world as opposed to, you know, I'm just looking for the highest paid electrician job that I can get. 
Yeah, and I think that a lot of people are turning inside to find a job that has some sort of purpose or meaning. And when we're going into this crisis, I think that the most meaningful thing you could do is be working towards this green transition. Yeah. One of the challenges, just in terms of the magnitude of the demand, no surprise, the fastest growing industry, labor industry in the country is solar installers. Yeah. And that's another really great thing about moving into renewable energy is that we're going to be able to employ so many people because they require people to constantly be um, tuning them up and cleaning them. And also they're community led. So you're going to get people who actually are from those areas working on the energy for that area. And so it's a really exciting and beautiful future. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I think I'll do it. Um, (laughs) But there's a flip side to it. The flip Mm -hmm. side to it is There's really a compelling need for us to reduce costs. I mean, that's kind of what I've been focusing on since 2001 when I started doing solar. It's like, how do we reduce the cost? How do we be more efficient? How do we have that $60,000 solar system get it down to $6,000? You know, and what's interesting right now, that $60,000 system that I sold in 2001 is about $20,000 now, but we want to still get it down, you know, below 10 and then it really, really pays off. But how can we reconcile the fact that when there's a lot of demand for jobs, the price goes up. So how do we reconcile that increase in demand, increase in wages with having to reduce the cost so that everybody can afford it? That's a really big problem. Well, I think that when we start weaning ourselves off of the fossil fuel industry, there's going to be a lot of demand and a lot of need for solar. And just by virtue of expansion, the costs will go down. And also the other side of it is that it's important right now that part of the just transition that we're looking at is not necessarily all about transitioning in a way that moving from this like constant growth mentality is kind of into another just mentality of constant growth is not going to be sustainable. I mean, the expectation that our economy will continuously grow has put us in the situation right now where we're facing climate catastrophe. So we need to start making sure that the emphasis is more on the person, on human capital, on a good life. And so I think that in someone in the industry, like it it probably is really difficult because you're working in the system right now. And so you do need a lower cost in order to survive. But I think part of the just transition is making sure that we're actually valuing people's lives more than we are profits. Yeah. And part of it is sustainable growth. It's really important for an economy to continue to grow it, you know, just call it 2%. And the productivity goes up, quality of life goes up, and that, that's kind of good. When the economy contracts, and then it's really a big problem. So how can millennials influence our partisan political system? How can we as mm-hmm. individuals really change things? Yeah, that's a really in- interesting and good question. In America right now, one out of five Americans hear about global warming more than once a month. And a quarter of Americans never hear about global warming or climate change ever. And so if we're trying to pass the Green New Deal or something that's going to change everything and affect everyone, people need to start talking about this. And so part of our job as activists is creating a lot of moral protests of making this issue relevant to everyone. It's not it's not a bipartisan issue. It's something that affects everyone. Conservatives care about good jobs, too. And 
climate change does affect them. And the other thing that's really exciting and interesting is that there is a study done at Yale that saw that if 3.5% of the population was able to gain public support, so like active supporters, which means like people who are voting, going to the streets, talking about it, were able to get all of their goals met. And this is in social movements. As a supporter of the Green New Deal or of green energy or just transition, what you can do is start talking about it with your peers. There's something we call relational organizing, and that's making sure that one of the best ways to actually grow a movement is talking to the people you work with, your friends, your peers, the people around you. Because when we see all these massive protests on the street, there's a lot of reactions that say, oh, that happens once in a while, and then that's that's just a blip in the system. But really, w- when you see a protest, there's all these like underground connections that are being made. There are people having meetings, people organizing, people creating solidarity, doing events, fundraising, creating stronger ties, writing policies. So those are just like an example of all the underground work that is happening. I would say like, There are so many ways to get involved, but the first way is just talking to your peers about it and making it so that everyone is hearing about climate change and seeing that it affects everything. In addition to seeing, you know, the fires in California and temperatures rising. All right. Making the connections. So let's talk about getting involved. How did you get involved in this Mm -hmm. movement? How did you go from, you know, the high school in a fancy suburb to NYU, one of the best universities in the country, to, you know, being a climate activist? Yeah, no, that's a really great. So when I started at NYU, I mean, a lot of growing up in Saratoga, it was this expectation of going to college and having everything figured out for me. Once I got to college, I would see the light, I guess. But after going to college, I think that things became more confusing because the pathway to just a safe future or even just like a comfortable future was not a reality for me. And so I started getting more politically active and realizing that there's a huge gap between what the public wants and what politicians are doing. I started getting involved 10 months ago. I started, I went to the protest outside Nancy Pelosi's office, and that's when I was first introduced to Sunrise. And Sunrise is really incredible because of, first of all, how successful they have been. They've really put the Green New Deal on the map. They've allowed for, they've pressured the DNC so much that the DNC had Well, the DNC never had a dedicated climate debate, but they did pressure the politicians to have their own debate with CNN, which is the longest coverage on climate change. It was seven hours long. And that was pretty revolutionary. And so, yeah, that makes Mm -hmm. sense. It's a great transition. And it's something that I hope you and, you know, my friends also continue to push towards. All right. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks, Kylie, for joining us. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcast. 